Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Schools are getting back in session for the third academic year impacted by COVID-19. To discuss this, along with the weaponization of education and educators by right-wing political forces, I've invited my friend Sari Beth Rosenberg on the show. Sari is a public high school teacher in Manhattan whose career was originally due to start on September 11th, 2001. Back-to-school time can always bring about some mixed emotions. Then you add COVID-19 anxiety to the mix. It can be a lot to process. We've got a local breaking news alert for parents, students, and teachers in Ware County. All public schools will now be closed for two weeks because of a rise in coronavirus cases. This all started with the school board in Williamson County passing a mask mandate that went into effect today. Hundreds of parents who could not fit inside the auditorium stayed outside shouting no more masks during a protest. The president saying today this is about safety, not about politics. The very term itself, critical race theory, has become a political flashpoint across the country, especially when it comes to how to teach young people about justice justice, and equity in America. Hi, my name is Sari Beth Rosenberg. I believe that we have to educate in order to have a just democracy. Sorry, not sorry. Sari, you are going back to school and the Delta variant is raging across the country. Tell me how that feels. It feels scary. I will say that my first emotion about back to school is I am excited. I was teaching remotely all last year, well, since March of 2020. And when I finish up the school year online, I talked to all my students from this year saying, when we go back, this was when it was announced in New York City that we didn't even need masks anymore. And all my students were getting vaccinated. So we left the end of the school year on such a good note that we're going to have a pizza party when we get back and meet each other in real life. And they're going to help me decorate my classroom, something I love doing. And all that came crashing down mid-July. And suddenly my emotions around returning to school are back to how I was honestly feeling a year ago. And I hate to say that out loud because I had such different expectations of how I was going to feel this summer. Is it anxiety? Can you pinpoint what you're feeling? Anxiety is the word for it. It's anxiety for my students because first of all, I know that they're returning with heightened anxiety after a year being essentially shut in not socializing the way they're used to. And they already felt anxiety. And now I know for sure that everyone's going to be extra anxious about safety, about just the fact that even when you're vaccinated, this virus can spread. And so I wanted to put all my social emotional support into helping them acclimate back to in-person learning and what that means. And my goal is to add a lot of socializing back into our activities because they haven't been able to socialize with each other in that way. And now I'm anxious about even doing that because God forbid I do an activity where people are a little too close and someone gets sick in my classroom. It's so unfair. I mostly just feel angry for our young people because they're getting shortchanged now a second year. I know. As I dropped my kids off to school this morning for their first day, Bella's in first grade and Milo's in fourth grade, and they're too young to get the vaccination. 
So I'm also dealing with that terror of, of course, they're going to get sick because kids get sick in school. And being someone who's anxious anyway, once that happens, let's say it starts with, I don't know, both my kids usually get super pukey when they get sick. Like that's that's the first sign that they're sick is that their Uh, stomach is not great. So uh, I was trying to work through in my head that first time during the school year when they get sick and my own hysteria of, is this just strep? Is it something that we can treat with antibiotics or is it COVID? And that's just because I think they're still so unknown about how children get this and how they get sick and what parts of their being are impacted. I'm just terrified. I'm so sorry. It's just, it's not my fault, but I, as a woman, I always apologize. I, I apologize on behalf of the Delta variant, right? right. I always apologize. I'm not sorry uh, though. Yeah. Sorry. Not sorry. What COVID protections is your school requiring for you and for the students? I believe that we have those HEPA filters in every classroom. Not every classroom that exists in my school building has windows. So I'm hoping that like last year, we don't use those windowless buildings, but that has to do with capacity. How are teachers responding to this debate over mask mandates? So by and large, um, teachers want the mask mandates um, across the country. It's not that teachers like masks. It's really uncomfortable to teach in a mask. It's uncomfortable to be in a mask. It's part of the reason why ventilation systems really have to be better. But we've just been thrown a curveball with the Delta variant. And we want more important than anything else. Schools need to be open full on for kids for a safe and welcoming and joyful school year. And we need to keep them open. And that's what the mask mandate will help do. As of now, what's going on in New York City, at least, I can sort of speak for other places, but in New York City, the last Chalkbeat article I read that covers education is that administrators are in conversation with the Department of Education, asking them for more guidance about what social distancing is supposed to look like. The other issue that I saw, there's a group called Teens Take Charge, and they're a young activist group in New York City. They fought for school integration, and they just sent a petition out asking for a remote school option. So that's something else that's kind of looming in the background, that what about the kids under 12? What happens if they're immunocompromised or family members are? And so we're not going to give them the option to learn remotely until they can be vaccinated? But also the breakthrough cases, which aren't that many, but when you think about trying to get our lives back to normal, going to do those things that we want to do, like my brother, fully vaccinated, went to a gym and worked out, as lots of people have done, and he got the Delta variant. Oh, God. And so then he was terrified of bringing it home to Luke and to Charlotte, his wife. Mm-hmm. They were knock on wood, fine. Milo and Bella get sick. They bring it home. There's possibility for breakthrough cases. And then you look at my parents who are in their mid-70s. And part of me feels like we messaged this all wrong from the beginning. I feel like we messaged it on a national... Well, obviously, let's just take Trump out of the equation because clearly he messaged it wrong. But I feel like once Biden got into office, there was a moment where he could have chosen to say... 
you know what? This thing's not going away. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated. You're all going to get vaccinated. We're going to make this available to everybody. It's going to be free. The closest center that you can go it will be five miles from your house. All the same things. But instead of saying we need to get vaccinated to eradicate this, just saying we're going to live with this for a while. So we all have to make compromises. We all have to take care of each other. We all have to figure this out because now what it looks like is that the vaccine doesn't work. And then the argument becomes, well, what's the point? You still get COVID. I agree with you because we came from a place of like, once you get vaccinated, this horror story is over, which was never going to be the case, unfortunately. I think if we would have been honest about that right from the beginning, maybe we would be in a different place than we're at right now. Do you think New York schools, do you think your school is doing enough to protect you, to protect kids? I think they're doing as much as they can in a situation where it's not up to them to do any more at this point, right? So I think they're going to do their best to socially distance in the classrooms and have those HEPA filters installed and have a very strong assertive mask policy with repercussions if you don't wear a mask. We are working on a campaign to get teachers and students and school staff to make these. I did want a TikTok video about why I got vaccinated to make it cool. I don't know if I make it seem cool, but to get some of the cool kids to do it. You make everything seem cool. Oh, thanks. I mean, I'm obsessed with TikToks and I'm not very good at it. And that's kind of the joke of my students. So I did that kind of to show them like, I can be foolish and make this. Why don't you guys do it? The goal is to just at my school, make it very clear that we are pro-vaccine. We are standing strongly behind that you need to wear a mask. And I think the one thing we're learning, I've always felt like if I did X, Y, and Z, I can control what goes on in my life. And that's cute, right? But I think this pandemic really has forced us to realize that we can do everything right and we still can't control things. So I'm just trying to manage my anxiety around it now because the last thing I want to do is to go into the classroom and bring that anxiety to them. So if my students are listening, I am anxious, but when I stay in the classroom, I'm going to act cool and calm and just try to make it the best learning experience that they can have this year. What are you hearing from your colleagues in places like Florida and Texas where the state governments are literally preventing solutions like mask mandates for school. Students here in Florida are heading back to school, but also in Georgia, in Arizona. These students, well, they're going to be entering classrooms at a time in which their governors have banned school districts from requiring their classmates from wearing masks. What we are seeing is that school districts, for the first time, are now beginning to try to directly challenge those governor's orders. I'm in several groups, and as you know, I host this PBS NewsHour Extra Educator Series with teachers all around the country. And the reason why maybe I feel more fortunate, even though I am scared to go back, is that I'm comparing myself to my colleagues in this profession who are already back. A lot of them are too scared to speak up on Twitter. That's why I'm always tweeting about it because I'll get a message privately from someone. And then I think, okay, I don't have the hugest platform, but I have a big enough one that people will see it. Also, I don't live in a place where I fear retribution or job loss or parents coming after me. But what I'm hearing is that they're terrified. One teacher took a photo of before the students were coming, there's usually staff professional development. They were doing an activity, not wearing masks, holding hands all on top of each other because 
in a lot of these parts of America, they're still acting as if this doesn't exist. And they are gaslighting and bullying teachers, school staff members, students, and their parents if they say otherwise. And it's outrageous. And I wish there was more that can be done. I know that we have federalism. I'm a history and civics teacher. So there's just so much you can do on the federal level to get these states to comply with the science. But I just wish we could be doing more because it's almost like watching a car crash in slow motion and still knowing you can't stop it. But again, I also feel like this is a situation where we fucked up the messaging because I think in the beginning, we said it's not impacting young people. It's not impacting kids. We did not say, and what we should have said was, you know what? This strain right now seems to be, but that does not mean that the next variant is not going to impact children. So we got to keep those kids safe. So a lot of these states are still going on that old information that kids are fine, even as hospitals are filling up, as there are a limited number of pediatric ICU beds. And that's terrifying. Last summer, I had a webinar with two epidemiologists and I said, it's as if people think that you can get COVID anywhere else, but schools are magical fairy tale places. They're magical fairylands and COVID says, oh no, I'm not going to enter this school building because young people want to learn. And it just made no sense that the flu can spread. And I've gotten some crazy illnesses teaching classrooms, like just ridiculous. I've gotten like foot and mouth disease, like as an adult. And I remember telling people that they're like, Roseola, like, like weird. Yeah, yeah, the weirdest. <laughs> I've gotten the weirdest stuff in the classroom. Ringworm. So, I haven't gotten that. I haven't gotten that yet. Oh. But, um, and when adults, get that stuff. It's far worse. Mm -hmm. And so those experiences of mine made me realize like, okay, so you're telling me that you can get all these other crazy illnesses, just touching a paper that a kid touched and maybe touching your face, but I'm not going to get some kind of COVID variant. And so the reason why COVID wasn't spreading in schools like it's now doing is because a lot of the schools were hybrid and not fully packed or even open. So this is one of those situations where it's like, I don't like saying I told you so, because I was doing magical thinking, wishful thinking too about this year. But I feel like it's just as scary as last year, but like with no excuses, because now we know better. Now it's like scary because of the rebellion of these states, right? Because of their war on science and information and vaccinations. So it's scary on a whole other level. It's not just the unknown. Now it's scary like we know and people are still working against us. It's almost like they're even more hardened in their views. It's now become solidified in their personalities and in who they are. It's been politicized like everything else in this country. I want to switch gears for a minute. A number of politicians on the right have latched on to critical race theory as a lever to attack teachers. 
Conservative dark money groups are now pushing the critical race theory debate on a local level, a hyper-local level. This comes as at least four states have passed legislation banning lessons about race in the classroom, and the number of states considering the ban continues to rise. An NBC News analysis found at least 165 local and national groups are fueling this discussion among parents and teachers. First of all, you're a high school history teacher. How much critical race theory has been incorporated into your lesson plans over the years? None. Never heard of it until this year. Not because I'm ignorant. I actually am pretty expert in civil rights history. I may get a point to really teach that from the beginning of the school year. Critical race theory is not taught. However, They don't really mean critical race theory when they're shouting about this in school board meetings and passing these bills. What they're really talking about is teaching about anti-racism, teaching about structural racism. Systemic racism. Systemic racism, exactly. So this is just a term that was tested out in focus groups because it sounds like Marxism and it connects something related to that, I've heard. But it's something that is not taught in the K through 12. In fact, it's not taught in college. Now, what's kind of ironic is I'm probably going to teach about it now since they've put it in current events. And it's something that my students are going to ask about because they probably see it everywhere, but it's not taught. And it's also because everyone freaked out about the 1619 project. But again, I think it was Fred Joseph who said, well, they can't say they're anti-anti-racism because then they're just saying they're racist. But if they say they're against critical race theory, it sounds maybe scary to people. Yeah, because I think it's easy to be against something that nobody knows what the fuck it is. Right. It's like this boogeyman. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I don't understand really that this is the thing that they're latching on to right now (laughs) with so much that is going on in our country, in the world globally, that they're taking this and making this a moment to fight against the teaching of history. And I get like, they're really good at messaging. (laughs) So we're talking about, you know, where we're bad at messaging. They actually do go in and test these words out and these phrases out. And clearly critical race theory was something that scared people that resonated. And they're like, yep, we're going to go with that. So if it hasn't been part of the high school curriculum, why are educators being attacked for teaching it? Because ultimately, even though critical race theory, which is something that is taught if you happen to take law school classes in this area, right now, I believe there are 27 states and counting who've introduced these measures to ban or make it difficult for schools to examine racism in American history or teach the 1619 Project. And I think it might be more now, but at least eight states have actually turned these bills into laws. If you look at these bills or these laws that have been passed, what they really don't want you to teach is the details of slavery. They don't want you to teach about the fact that the first enslaved people were brought over here in 1619 and that slavery was chattel slavery and race-based. All those, all the really ugly parts of American history, they don't want you to teach. And they also are saying they don't want you to teach things that make white students feel uncomfortable. So ultimately, they're using the term critical race theory, but what they're really banning teaching is any content that a white parent, because I don't think we're really including young people in this conversation, of course, right? Why would you ask young people what they want to learn about? What the parents, white parents are freaking out about is that 
I don't even know if they are freaking out about it, but now they are, right? And the fear is, I don't want my teacher being told that America isn't just like an amazingly great place. It's too negative. It makes them uncomfortable. White kids need to be a little uncomfortable. People should be uncomfortable about racism. They should get uncomfortable. They should sit in the discomfort and examine what they can do to change. Can you give me some examples of systemic racism in American history? Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about schools. (laughs) The fact that our school systems from the very beginning, once Reconstruction ended, were segregated and they still are. They're still segregated. And what that means is that you're not going to have equal funding in schools and the schools that have primarily minorities aren't going to get all the same opportunities as the more primarily white schools. And that's baked into the structure. And then it carries over into the opportunities they have post high school, post college. Another great example is housing, redlining. And this is something where essentially, very simply put, if you were black or brown, if you were BIPOC, you weren't allowed to even look at a house in a certain neighborhood because they were keeping them segregated. What's really interesting to keep in mind is it wasn't taught when I was in high school, but I sure as hell teach it. That redlining didn't just happen in the Deep South. It happened in the North. It happened in New York City. It's the idea that racism isn't just something that individuals perpetuate. It's something that systems have been built around to keep it that way. And it's so important that not just Black and Brown BIPOC students, young people learn this. It's important that white people learn this because I don't know about you, and I think you're going to agree, people created these structures People can change these structures. And it's this idea that somehow if we share the power that we were given because of these structures that were put in place, we're somehow going to lose what we have. And it's such a misconception, right? But it's something that people fear and then it's politicized. But if a black and brown person gets the same opportunities as me, that that doesn't hurt me. In fact, studies show that white people who are in integrated schools are the ones who benefit the most from it. But A lot of people don't want to believe that. How would it hurt your students to not be able to teach about these events, which not only happened, but are still happening? They already feel sidelined. The Texas State Senate has just voted in favor of one of Governor Greg Abbott's agenda items. And yes, it has to do with critical race theory and how it should be banned from public schools. But it goes even further. It goes a step further. And I want to tell you exactly what this is. Well, Senate Bill 3 states that a teacher may not be compelled to discuss a particular current event or widely debated and currently controversial issue of public policy or social affairs. Oh, It's fascinating, Um, so what does that include? Well, the bill is a follow-up to an already passed House bill that Abbott signed in May. Now, among the changes in SB3 is the removal of a reference to the KKK being morally wrong They already don't feel totally a part of the American story. Many of them are first generation. Many of them can trace their lineage back to enslavement. They're not in the textbooks as it is. It's only recently that we've been following the important message that representation matters, that if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? And so it's been too long of us not including people who are not white in the American story. And they are a part of the American story. They always have been. And I'm so happy that we're moving in the direction of including everyone into the story. 
And if we start eliminating their role, their family members' role, their other generation's role in the story of America, then what's that telling them about their place in this country? They already feel sidelined when they've learned about this stuff. How do they feel about their history being erased for political purposes? Have you had conversations with kids? Here, want to hear the worst part? They're not surprised. They're not surprised because they come to me in 11th grade and say, wait, why didn't I ever learn about this in middle school? Why didn't they teach us about this in elementary school? Why are we just learning about this now? So they're used to it. So the sad thing is that, you know, after the 1-6 domestic terrorist insurrection on our Capitol, I didn't know what to expect from our discussion the next day. And they were not that surprised by it. They said, miss, this is America. Of course, the white supremacists came out. They're going to do everything. I don't think any of us were that surprised. No, we weren't surprised either. The people who are surprised are the people who didn't secure enough security on that day. But everybody else, we knew it was coming. We were talking about, I'm worried about the violence. I'm worried about this. And having conversations with my friends and they were like, oh, yeah, it's going to go down. And by the way, it's not over. Violence is still going to happen. There are going to be pockets of this type of uprising and white supremacy, and it's going to take its toll. And I predict that it's probably going to be the next decade that we're going to be living with this. You started a feminist club at your school, which you know I love. Oh, yeah. You're an honorary (laughs) member. I love it. How did that come about? That came about from the students. Like most things I do, it comes from the students. A lot of times I say to them, I never thought to do that. Good idea. Like lessons or activities. And that's why I keep talking about it's so important that we include young people in their education, in the lessons, in the curriculum, because we just need to believe in young people more and amplify their voices. And so it was back in like 2014, 2015, Mr. Marks, the co-advisor of the club, and I were hanging out with some students and One of them had mentioned she wanted to start a women's studies club. And Mr. Marks and I were like, oh, my God, really? This is the club we wanted when we were in high school. But no one would do. I mean, being a feminist in the 19 late 80s, early 90s, if I were to say I was a feminist out loud back then, that was a dirty word almost. Right. I didn't think it was. But people used to mock feminists. And so we sat around. I remember sitting around the tables the spring semester 2015. And I think our first real bold action was the kids said, you know what? Let's not call it women's club because we want boys to be members too. Let's call it feminist club. And some kids said, oh, they're going to make fun of us. There's going to be a backlash. And this was when Beyonce, I think, was starting to use the word feminist in her backdrop in her concerts. Mm -hmm. But it was still pretty controversial back then, which is crazy to think. So did you receive backlash from like parents? Not from parents. Minds are not ready for this kind of information. Concerned parents staging a sit-out over a controversial change in curriculum in the San Juan Unified School District. The district is considering new history, social science materials featuring LGBTQ leaders. I didn't hear anything from parents. However, it's actually educated the young people who were making fun of it. And within a couple of years, no one even made fun of it anymore. But at first, boys were saying, we're going to start a men's club, you know, that typical stuff. And every meeting we sat around and made sure that every new member knew what a feminist was. A lot of people thought it just meant like, we believe that women should be the best or something. And we said, no, it's just that if you're a feminist, if you believe that men and male identifying and female identifying people should have equal rights in our society, if you believe that you're a feminist. And so 
what ended up happening is that this was an example of good messaging. So anytime a club member was in a classroom getting mocked for being the feminist club, they said, do you believe that men and women should be equal? And the person said, well, yeah. And then they said, you're a feminist then. And it's like, oh, oops. Okay, great. So ultimately the backlash kind of dwindled after a year. And now I'm going to say it. I think we're the coolest club at the school. Oh, I bet. Backlash from parents or the community even about helping kids find their social and political voices. So I am fortunate because I work in a pretty liberal city, New York City. Also, my high school is the high school for environmental studies. So it attracts definitely a liberal population of kids because they're into being climate change warriors and they're into social justice. So I will say that I am privileged to be at a school where it is so gay and queer friendly. If a student comes in and says, I know my name is a female name on paper, but I want to be identified as this male name, no one balks at it. In fact, the administrators change their email address within a second. I'm so lucky to be in a school like that. Now, when I talk to colleagues across the country, they're not as fortunate. And so that's where I can't really give advice on what to do, except for I believe if you're going to get into education, you need to be wanting to support every young person, regardless of if they fit into the mold or not of the school environment. So you might have to do it in more subtle ways to support them. But I do believe there's always ways to support young people, even if like explicitly you can't put it on your Instagram and Twitter. You were supposed to start your teaching career on 9-11, and we are coming up on the 20th. Can you believe the 20th anniversary of that day? Tell us about that day for you and how really it changed education. It did. It changed education. It changed the world. So I was supposed to wake up and go to LaGuardia Performing Arts High School and start my first day as a student teacher. I had changed. I worked in entertainment and then I shifted gears and I enrolled in grad school. And here I was probably had like a freshly pressed outfit ready to go. You know, because it was back then when you ironed your clothes still in the Mm. early 2000s. (laughs) You probably wore pantyhose. I don't think I ever did, but I do love a great pair of pantyhose. Not going to lie. It's gone full circle. Like in my 20s on the pantyhose. In in my 20s, I was like, who needs pantyhose? I'm like, oh, pantyhose are actually amazing. I love that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But back then I was too cool for that. But I do remember having a cute outfit set up. I probably had heels that were uncomfortable because I wanted to make a first impression. And instead I used to wake up to the Z morning zoo because they were so annoying. No offense, but they were really (laughs) annoying. And it got me out of bed. And they were talking about something about the World Trade Center and a plane. And I thought, wow, that's really dark humor. That's actually too far. But I pressed news anyway, because that's how I am. I press news if anyone wants to know too much. Eventually got up and then let's just say I didn't start my first day. And instead, my apartment, which was in Midtown Manhattan, became a spot for all of our friends downtown to go to because they were playing. U.S. Coast Guard and Toss. Yeah, cops in a major explosion top of the World Trade Center. Looks like a plane hit it. 9-11 holds 
place in the history of New York City and of our nation as one of the great disasters. The Holland Tunnel was shut down. The path was flooded. The George Washington Bridge was shut down. Two attacks. There have been in Manhattan, one plane colliding with one twin tower. 18 minutes later, oh my God. The only way for people to go to New Jersey is via boat. My starting student teaching was delayed. It was all a fog. My second semester, I was placed at Stuyvesant High School, which if people are listening, don't know the geography of New York like I do. That basically is right next to where the towers were. So every morning I walked past the carcass of what was once the World Trade Center. And I taught the seniors who ran for their lives that day. And they were numb. They didn't want to talk about it. I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to them about it now because back then they did that teenage trauma protective thing. I think that's a coping mechanism. I don't think that's about being a teenager. I just think that's how our brain protects us is to put it out of our head. It would be interesting to talk to them now, though, and see. Oh, yeah. 20 years later. My husband's brother was in Tower One, and he has not had a conversation with my husband about it at all. I'm not surprised. Yeah, exactly. I just think that's a coping mechanism. You got to think that's going to catch up with you, though, eventually. Trauma always does. You host a series of web interviews for PBS NewsHour, which you mentioned before, and you focus on educators. What is the prevailing message that you hear from teachers and education professionals about what's happening in education today? The prevailing message is they want more of a seat at the table. Educators. Educators. They want more of a seat at the table. However, a lot of them, if they're from districts that don't want them speaking up, then they don't want that seat per se. But I think the prevailing message is that teachers are not being treated enough as the professionals that they are. When did that happen? I feel like it's, I think, because of sexism and because teaching has always been considered a female profession, even though there's many amazing men who are teachers as well. I think it comes from patriarchal standards. And I think it comes from this attitude that teachers are simply just caretakers, babysitters, and no one should be treated that way, even if you're a babysitter, right? But I think it does come from the fact that it's a primarily female-dominated profession, or at least had been for a long time. And it's unfortunate because I've not met one educator who does not take this job seriously like a profession that it is. And it's happening again. They're not talking to teachers about what we should do if there is COVID outbreak. What should be the hybrid remote model? What actually does work for you? Because that's what works for young people, too. Is there any protocol in place for if there is an outbreak and it starts to get really bad in the school, what happens? There's not a federal one. I think because it's localities. Are there CDC guidelines? I think there are. I'm not familiar with them specifically. I think it's like if a certain number have tested positive, you do X, Y, and Z. But I've not heard anything, and we could fact check this later, that there's a hard number about like this percentage of kids test positive, you should shut down the school. I guess we could Google that, but I've yet to see what that is. The fact that I'm not aware of it is a bad sign because I should kind of be aware of that if I'm going back to school in a couple of weeks. I don't think there is really anything. Once again, the messaging is off. We want to say schools have been opened and we don't want to think about the fact that they're going to have to possibly be closed because of a pandemic that's beyond our control at this point. It's another example of how profits, I think, are making us make 
poor decisions as far as the country goes. We're aware that women lost two million jobs during the pandemic because a caretaking shortage, because caretaking is too expensive, because schools were shut down. So women had to quit their jobs, leave the workplace and become everything at home. What chunk of our economy was taken out of the economy is probably a lot of money, billions of dollars. And so I think what's happening in a lot of these states, especially the states that don't function in a surplus, I think people are saying, you know, school's fine. School's fine. You go back to work. School's fine. You go back to work because they need that money to be put into the economy. Now, I believe we should have done what other civilized democratic countries have done, which is pay people to stay home. Unfortunately, Pritesh, who is a new immigrant in Canada, was laid off from his job as a result of COVID-19. But just a week later, he found $2,000 in his bank account. Hello friends and welcome to another episode of Desi Chale Canada. Ever since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the government of Canada has taken exceptional measures to protect its citizens from the impact of the virus, both in terms of ensuring the physical safety of their residents as well as making sure that the economic impact of this situation can be minimized by giving various incentives to the Canadian public. And you know what that has enabled? It's enabled businesses to stay open because they're able to put their money into their rent. Their business is not dependent on whether or not people are leaving the house when it's all over, when you could go back to work, you could go back to work. But until then, here's $2,000 a month. Enjoy. Spend some time with your family and we will figure this out. It feels like in this country, we consider freedom to Trump, no pun Mm -hmm. intended, Mm -hmm. to Trump any sort of lifestyle that is conducive to health and wellness and self-care, especially in hard times like a pandemic. It's crazy to think about how we're putting so much weight on getting the economy back. So here's a question for you. If our listeners could take something away from this interview and bring something back into their communities and their school boards that would help them support teachers, what would you want that to be? What I want people to take back with them from this conversation is that, number one, they mustn't be afraid of critical race theory that What that really is, is we're teaching young people about structural racism and some of the problems that exist in America. But teachers aren't just teaching that when we teach about racism, that teachers teach about the complexity of things. We can teach about America being an amazing place with amazing ideals and so many opportunities. And we can also at the same time teach about the obstacles we still face as a nation that has structural racism and sexism and all of those awful elements. And I want parents and everyone listening to know that young people, even really young people, are capable of understanding that complexity as well. Young people can handle learning that America is both a wonderful place with a great opportunities and also a place that has work to do. Because doesn't everyone and doesn't every country and everything in this world. The other thing I want people to take back from our discussion today or conversation is to just believe the science more about this virus and listen to what the teachers are saying. And if teachers aren't talking, they might not be talking because they're scared of 
upsetting you with the reality of the fact that when you say it's your right to not put a mask on your kid, when you say it's your right to not get vaccinated or let your child who's over 12 get vaccinated, when you say it's your right to send your kid to school sick because they need to be in school and you're using the excuse that it's your liberty and freedom to do so, you're holding the rest of us hostage to your supposed liberty and freedoms. So I think we just need to start looking at the world from a more community-based perspective. We need to look at the world from, as you were talking about before, we focus so much on property that we ignore the people. And we don't have a just society, a fair and equal democracy when we're not looking out for every single person here in this country. And the other thing is teachers and school staff who are talking about safety issues during a global pandemic are not being selfish. We're not trying to get out of working. I don't know one educator that doesn't work their behinds off every day, even in the summer, to do their jobs really well for your child to learn to their greatest ability. And I want to just debunk that as well. It's not laziness when we say that it's not safe at school. It's that we actually really are worried about everyone's safety and not just our own. And finally, Sari, what gives you hope? The young people give me hope. And I know everyone says that, but I know firsthand. I spend most of my days, not in the summer, but the majority of the days I spend, whether it's online or in person, with Gen Z, with young people, young teenagers. And they give me hope every single day because even when we're discussing complicated, sad parts of our history, they look for the silver lining and they look for ways to fix it, especially this generation. I've never worked with a group of people who are so goal oriented and change oriented and accepting of others. I know that bullying does exist, but it doesn't exist in the way that it did when we were younger. And if it does, there's a word for it and people call it out. I know everyone says young people give them hope, but I don't think I'm being corny or cheesy by saying it because I see it every day. They give me so much hope and it keeps me young, or at least I think I look young. I don't know. One day I'm going to say that and they're going to be like, you actually don't look young you anymore. But just keep on- yeah, I think about that all the yeah. time. When I I'm said like, I'm so young and everyone's I'm like, like not- well, you know, I'm going to be 49 this year, like all proudly. And they're like, yeah, we know. Totally. Mm-hmm. Well, Sari Beth Rosenberg, you give me hope. Oh, and you give me hope too, of course. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for being a part of the podcast. And one of the things that I find a little disingenuous, when I suggest that people in zones where there is a high risk wear the mask like you all are doing, I'm told that government should get out of the way and not do that. They don't have authority to do that. And I find it interesting that some of the very people who are saying that, who are hold government positions, are people who are threatening that if a school teacher asks a student if they've been vaccinated, or if a principal says that everyone in my school should wear a mask or the school board votes for it, that governor will nullify that. That governor has the authority to say you can't do that. I find that totally counterintuitive and, quite frankly, disingenuous. Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. It's an axiom that has often proved true, and we have to wonder if that is the point of the right wing trying to erase the systemic racism 
from America's history. From Make America Great Again to the attacks on science, art, and history from conservative school boards across the country, it seems like the forces of oppression in America are desperately trying to push us back to the failings of our past. Teaching history matters. Telling your children the truth of who we were helps them make better decisions than those who came before us made. That's what we all want, isn't it? A world where our kids have better lives and do better things than we all did. So why is this so hard? Why in the world would we force teachers into dangerous environments during a pandemic, take away the tools they have to teach accurately, and also take away the means they have to protect themselves and their families from COVID. Who the hell thinks any of this is a good idea? To all the teachers out there, I'm so grateful for you. I'm proud of you for continuing to fight for our kids when so many Americans are set on fighting against them. You all deserve better from us. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 